Hi, everybody. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. I just want to get a chance to, to, to say hello to everybody uh, who is joining us right now, whether you're in Dane County or you're in somewhere in Wisconsin, somewhere around the country or somewhere around the world. Uh, to the Chinese speakers, and to everyone, welcome to Blackhawk Church. We're so glad that you can join us. Now, we are in a sermon series uh, called Take Heart. Uh, Faith in uncertain times. And we're living in uncertain times. I mean, the COVID-19 has just really changed all of our lives. I mean, in, in, in many different ways, right? right? And some of us, we are working because what we do is essential. Some of you are on the front lines and you're saving lives. Uh, some of you are risking your health right now, working to be able to produce the basic necessities that the rest of us all need. But I think for many of us, we've been sitting at home and we've been there for quite a while. And... There's more change coming, right? There's the next phase opening up. What is that all going to mean? What is that all going to look like? And we don't know. And already some of us have lost our jobs. For sure, most of our plans have gone up and just disappeared and vanished away. It is really natural in a time like this to respond with fear, with, with anxiety, and getting angry, getting frustrated, getting impatient. And so in this sermon series, we have one basic message. Take heart. Be encouraged. Now, Pastor Chris kicked off this series last week, uh, giving us four reasons to be encouraged, four reasons to take heart. Number one, we have a God who we can complain to. He has a chest that's big enough for us to beat on. Number two, we have a God who can sympathize with us. He's been through what we've gone through. He knows what we're going through right now. Number three, we have a God who empowers us during this time of difficulties. And number four, we have a God who's given us the prize. He has given us eternal life in something that we can hope in. And so today, I want to add to that list. I want to talk about something that we can take heart and be encouraged in. I want to talk about the presence of God in time of struggle, in times of uncertainty. Now, God's presence during this time looks different from what we're used to. But nonetheless, it is something that we can take heart in, something that we can be encouraged about. Now, the phrase, take heart, uh, we took that from the Gospel of John, chapter 16. And I'm going to put it on the screen right here. Um, this is our memory verse for the entire sermon series. And so uh, what I'm, I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to read this verse out loud in a bit. I'm going to ask you all to read it out loud with me. I mean, as loud as you possibly can, okay? Seriously, yelling at your screen is not weird at all. This is COVID-19, new, new era. This is the new normal. Okay, I just made that up. But okay, but read it with me out loud, okay? So Jesus says this. He says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, if you look at this verse a little bit more, some of you may have already noticed that there's something that seems to be inherently self-contradictory in this verse, right? If you look at it, it says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, if Jesus has truly overcome the world, why do we still have trouble? That's strange, right? I mean, I mean look, here's the thing. Uh, I don't care how much of an optimist you are or how rose-tinted colored glasses you wear, nobody's right now is saying, oh, the world is just peachy king. Rather, it's extremely obvious 
that the forces of chaos, forces of disease and death still reign over our world. So what is Jesus talking about? Now, if Jesus has said, hey, I will overcome the world, we'd be like, okay, we get that. It's off in the future, something we have to be patient and wait for. Okay, that's okay. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, I have overcome the world. So what's he talking about? Well, to answer that question, I want to remind us of a phrase we use here at Blackhawk on a very regular basis. We often say that we are broken people living in a broken world. We are broken people living in a broken world. When we say that again and again, all the time, and, and we use that phrase as kind of as a shorthand to remind us of this critical part of the story of the Bible, where humans, well, we rebelled against God. We basically said to God, hey, God, we would like to run the world ourselves without you. And God, typical God, in his graciousness, he complied with our demand. And he, to a certain extent, withdrew himself from the world he created. And the result of that withdrawal has been nothing short of disastrous. First, he withdrew his presence from us. So that every human being, from the moment we are, we are born, we are separated from God. And that separation means that every aspect of who we are becomes corrupted. Every aspect. Our body breaks down, eventually falls apart. Our rationality, our thinking, our emotions, our relationship with others, all are tainted with dysfunction and distortion. We want the wrong things and we want them the wrong way. And it's not just individuals, but when broken people come together and build things together, whatever we build is also broken, right? Our society, our culture, our economy, our laws, inherent in every human system are forces that promote greed, egotism, injustice, and tribalism. Forces that both reflect and amplify our brokenness. We are broken people. And that's the first part of that phrase. The second part? living in a broken world. You see, God didn't just withdraw from the humans. He also withdrew from our physical world. The world that he created to be our home, to be a place that's, that's really where we feel at ease. By, by his withdrawal, he, he, the world became disordered. And, and now it's less hospitable. We have earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, COVID-19. This is not the first time. Right? Throughout human history, every so often, a plague rips through the world's population. We are broken people living in a broken world. And we say that again and again so that we're not surprised when this brokenness bursts into our seemingly well-ordered lives and just mess everything up. And it does not matter how much technology advanced or science advanced or how much human ingenuity we deploy or how we change our laws or change how we govern ourselves. Okay? The basic brute fact of our existence has not and will not change. Broken people living in a broken world. That's what the Bible says about who we are and where we are. And that means that when Jesus came to earth that first time, it was on a mission of restoration. Right? Goal number one, he wants to restore our relationship with God so that we once again know him, we trust him, we love him, and we submit to him. Goal number two, he wants to restore us so that we're no longer ruled by ego or fear and that we can have good relationship with each other and not hurt each other as we do life together. And goal number three, he wants to restore this entire physical world 
so that the planet once again becomes our home, becomes a place where we feel at ease in. So he wants to destroy death and destroy suffering and end all of that. And he says, and he promises that when he come back, comes back the second time, it will all be restored. It will all be done. There'll be no more death, no more suffering. And that is awesome news. That is worth our waiting. It's worth getting excited about and getting encouraged about. But that's in the future. A glorious future, but future nonetheless. What about now? Remember, Jesus didn't say, I will overcome the world. He said, I have overcome the world. The Greek word in, uh, in that verse, to, he said, that, means, that means I have overcome, is nanikeka, which comes out of the Greek verb nikao. The, the word means conquer, to vanquish, to crush, to defeat, to be victorious. It is used on um, uh, sorry, it is used uh, for soldiers and athletes and lawyers. It is about victory and triumph. The noun form of that word is Nike, from which we get the word Nike, the goddess of victory. Right? Nike is about winning, and we like winning. We are a culture that really gets into winning. Vince Lombardi in 1959 famously said, Winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. And of course, from one of the greatest movies of all time, Top Gun, come these immortal words. There are no points for second place. We live in a culture that glorifies winners. We live in a culture that celebrates success. Look around, who are the heroes of our culture? Who do we put on pedestals? Winners. And because we like winning so much, we associate God with winning. I mean, I don't know if you notice when you watch sports, God is always on the winning side, right? You, you have a, the NFL wide receiver, he you know, catches the ball, fakes out the cornerback, runs into the end zone, he gets on his knees, points to heaven, right? Acknowledging that it is God who gave him the physical skills to, to do what he just did. Now, that's a good thing, acknowledging God. But what I always wonder about is what about that cornerback who missed the tackle? Does he ever get on his knee and go like this? No. Go into a winning locker room and somebody's always thanking God. Go to the losing locker room, nobody mentions God. Because no, God is not with the losers, God's with the winners. We connect God with winning, not just in sports. We thank God when we get a job, when we get a promotion, a good business deal, or even a good parking space. We thank God for our family, for, for good relationships, for having the things we need to, to live. We thank God for health, for healing. We thank God for protection, for safety, for deliverance from dangerous situations. We associate God with everything going the way we want, with minimal fuss and no inconvenience. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't thank God when things are going well. We absolutely should thank God when things are going well. But here's my question. What about when things are not going so well? When we're going through times of trouble, when we're going through uncertain times, what about right now? If we associate God only with winning, where is he now? And so we have Jesus. He says, ego nindikeka ton kosmon, I have overcome the world. 
I crushed the world. I beat the world. I triumphed over the world. I won. I am the winner. I am the champion. And he says this the night before he's nailed to the cross. And if I had been one of the disciples, I'd be like, uh, Jesus, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Because getting arrested is not winning. Getting beaten to a pulp is not winning. Getting nailed to a cross naked in front of a huge crowd is not winning. And this is one of the big problems trying to follow Jesus, listening to the things he says, because he uses normal words, but he uses them in such strange ways. He says, I won. Now watch me win on the cross. We as a church, we've been reading the Gospel of Mark, and we spent 20 weeks on this book. And I want to take us back to a verse. Three weeks ago, we looked at this. That's talking about Jesus on the cross. It's chapter 15, verse 39. And and this verse happens when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he had just died. Okay, and this is what happens next. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Now, what does this verse teach us? That Jesus was the son of God? Well, no, duh, we already knew that. Mark told us Jesus is the Son of God at the very beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verse 1, right at the beginning. He said, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Messiah refers to Jesus as the King. That's his human title. And Son of God says Jesus is God. He is divine. Now, here's the thing. The phrase Son of God only shows up two more times in the Gospel of Mark. One time in chapter 3, you have a bunch of demons. They, 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 they recognize Jesus as being divine. And the only other time is in chapter 15, the one we just looked at. So you see that Mark is using this phrase, Son of God. One time in chapter 1, verse 1, the other one at the very end, he uses it to tie up the entire story of the gospel of Mark. Okay, that's kind of cool. Nice framing device. So what? What's the point? Think about it. I mean, do you think it's kind of weird that in the entire Gospel of Mark, the only person who recognized Jesus as the Son of God is the Roman centurion? And we read the whole book, right? And we saw Jesus do all kinds of amazing things in the book. And he calmed the storms. He raised people from the dead. He fed thousands of people using a few loaves of bread. He drove out demons. He he opened the eyes of the blind. He did amazing miracles. And yet not one person, not one person says, oh, wow, this guy, he is God. Nobody says that. Does not happen until chapter 15, until the Roman centurion says it. And how does the Roman centurion figure this out? Well, not in response to a miracle, not in response to honor or glory or majesty or splendor, none of that. How does the Roman centurion figure out that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's look at the verse one more time. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. This is is a soldier. Most likely he knows nothing about Jewish history, There was nothing about the promise of a Messiah or the the coming of a future kingdom of God. He knows 
nothing. He sees one thing and one thing only. He sees a man in the throes of death. He sees how Jesus handles his suffering on the cross. And he says, oh, whoa, this guy, this is not a normal guy. This guy's extraordinary. He is not human. He is divine. He is God. Mark is getting at something absolutely profound here. And that is, in his suffering on the cross, Jesus reveals the presence of God. Now, I'm not saying that God is not around when things are going well. I'm not saying that. Right? God blesses people. God gives people health and prosperity. That's all. God does that. God is around when things are going well. But the point that Mark is making is that it is in suffering that God's presence is revealed in a unique way that distinguishes the kingdom of God from this world. This world says winning is about triumph. It's about glory. It's about honor. It's about getting what you want. And Jesus says, no, I won. I'm the champion. I'm the victor. And then he goes and shows us what winning looks like in the kingdom of God. The world has one definition of winning. The kingdom of God has another. And the New Testament writers, they totally get this. They totally got into this. And they developed this crazy idea, crazy idea, that if we are Christ followers, then we should actually follow Christ. Meaning that we follow Jesus into his suffering. Here's Paul in Philippians. He says, Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is Paul's desire. Okay, now we get the first part, right? Paul says, I want to know Christ. Sounds good. To know the power of his resurrection sounds really good. The next part, huh. Paul wants to participate in Jesus' sufferings and becoming like him in his death. I, I, I'm going to be really honest with you. I don't know about you. Maybe you've done this. I have never prayed asking God that I can participate in Jesus' suffering. Never done it. Now, it's not just Paul. Here's Peter. To this you were called. To what? Well, we'll find out in a bit. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The New Testament writers are consistent. Follow Jesus into his suffering. That's our calling. Why? Because it is in suffering that God draws us to himself, and he can use that suffering as an opportunity to transform us into who he wants us to be. Paul, again, in the, in the book of Romans, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering is the time of intense transformation. It is the time where the Holy Spirit is uniquely present with us to work in our hearts. 17 years ago, I was a grad student here at UW 
in the Department of Hebrew and Semitics. I was doing my prelims, and one Saturday morning, my eye just started hurting, like somebody's scratching on my eyeball. Uh, the pain was so excruciating, we actually uh, went and found an ophthalmologist that very afternoon. And the ophthalmologist, he said, huh, hmm, interesting. And he said, well, Charles, you have corneal epithelial erosion, which in English meant that a chunk of the skin that's protecting my eyeball has fallen off. But he said, don't worry, Charles, it's okay. It'll grow back in about three or four days. Well, he was wrong. Because instead of corneal epithelial erosion, I had recurrent corneal epithelial erosion, which meant that that chunk of skin that's protecting my eyeball, it would fall off every day or every couple of days. And that Saturday in 2003 began a cumulative four-year period in which the condition afflicted one eye and then the other. I remember those days. I remember waking up every morning, my eyes are closed, and I'd be like wide awake in anticipation, just dreading, wondering if today is going to be a good day or a bad day. A good day would be moderate amount of pain. I can't, I can't really do anything. I can't read, can't write, but I can get out of bed. I could go out shopping. I can play with the girls. I can make dinner. I can talk to Serena after she gets home from work. A bad day is when the pain is so intense that I'm just doped up on coding. My mind is a haze, and I spent the whole day in a room, lying in bed in complete darkness because the light just makes the pain feel 10 times worse. Uh, now, it's not just the physical pain. It's that in moments of clarity, I would just survey the wreckage that was my life. I, I was a grad student on, on, on my way to a PhD in Old Testament. I had wife, two kids. My plan was to become a professor at a seminary or at a research university. Now I can't read, I can't write, I can't work. Um, and my mind is regularly hazy from opioids. The doctors, they, they tried a few things, and after a while they said, you know, Charles, we're just going to have to wait it out. We'll see what happens. Maybe it'll get better by itself. And so questions haunted me. Questions like, what if it never gets better? What if I leave, have to live the rest of my life in pain, in darkness? What kind of father can I be? What kind of husband can I be? How are we gonna, how are we gonna survive? How, 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 how am I gonna pay back my student loans? Four years. Four years doing which God used to change my life in all kinds of ways, big and small. I wanna mention just two fundamental ways in which he changed me. Number one, I learned that whatever sense of control I feel like I have had over my life is an illusion. That whatever I think I'm planning on, it can just go away just like that. Now, now Pastor Chris is going to talk about planning and what that looks like next week, so I don't, I'm not going to go deep into it. But here's the thing. My plan to become a professor just went away. By the time I got my PhD, I was too old to do the adjunct professor path. My girls were just old enough that I do not want to uproot them. And my wife, Serena, she got a career going at Madison School District. So I decided to stay in Madison. And eventually God led me to come here to work at Blackhawk Church. Now seriously, this is like, I can't imagine a better place to work. God has led me to the perfect place, but this was not my plan. 
Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have gone through something like this, where you had a plan for your life, and then something happened, and that something completely altered the trajectory of your life. And I think, I think all of us, we're learning a bit of that right now. Right? Who hasn't had a plan for the summer disrupted? I mean, some of those plans are vacations, and this is hard because we plan them, and we need those vacations. Some of us were, you know, significant moments are, are, are kind of just tossed away. Graduation, family reunion, even weddings. And I think most of us certainly did not plan about losing jobs or closing down our businesses. What we're learning is that our plans don't mean a heck of a lot. And learning that control is an illusion is part of the presence of God with us right now. That's the first thing. The second thing. I learned that it's about who I am, not what I do. Look, I spend day after day cooped up in a dark room, doped up on drugs, doing nothing, producing nothing. <laughs> and you know what I heard from God? I am a son of God. I am a child of God, a beloved by the creator God of the universe. Nothing else matters. My worth does not depend on what I do or what people think about me. It is not about my talents, my, my writing, my research, my, my knowledge, my ability to teach, none of that. Who I am is founded in Christ and Christ alone. Many of you have gone through similar kind of situations where the things we rely on for our identity, for our self-worth, are torn away from us. Whether it's beauty or money or popularity or, or, or talents or, or education or work. And we are, we are confronted with that question. Who am I apart from all these things? And it is times like those that the Holy Spirit comes to us and just dig deep into our soul. And he is crafting and he's rooting us in Christ and Christ alone. It's an amazing time for God can do. I think many of us are experiencing some of this right now. We are, many of us, we're separated from some of the social structures that give us meaning and give us identity. May the Holy Spirit have his full work in us. All right, let me pull it together. Um, in times of trouble, in times of suffering, in times of difficulty, God draws us to himself to comfort us and to help us grow and help us learn. Apostle Paul, um, he learned this same lesson. It's amazing. He, he, he had things going on in his life that, that was difficult, and he asked God to fix it. And God said, no. And so Paul learned how to embrace the process of growth. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians. He's recounting how he asked God to fix his problem. And this is God's response to him. Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I'm not fixing your problem. So what does Paul do? He responds, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight 
in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, this is some serious Yoda speak here, right? I mean, powers made perfect in weakness. When I'm weak, then I am strong. I mean, this is following that whole upside down kingdom thing that Jesus got going, right? Where, where, where you know, if you're the leader, you're the servant. Uh, weakness is strength. Suffering is winning. And all of this is just crazy from our world's perspective. It's just absolutely nuts. I mean, Paul actually talks about delighting in suffering. It sounds like some kind of a weird masochism. And I want to be honest. I do not delight in suffering. I'm not where Paul is. Not at all. But I do know where he's coming from. From the Bible's perspective, as we live in this broken world, what God is up to, the most important thing that he's doing, he is building, he is establishing a transformed people. That's us, people who are following him. That's us. God's working right here. He's working on us. That's the biggest thing he is doing. And so we say this at Blackhawk all the time. We say, hey, we're all on a journey of transformation. We're on a journey of faith, a journey of growth, and we want all of us to grow. So we, we encourage you, hey, read the Bible, uh, um, pray, join a life group, serve people in our community, Be, live a life of generosity because giving away resources really helps you grow. But here's the reality. Nothing changes us more effectively than going through hard times. We are broken people living in a broken world and God is with us. And when we go through hard times, as we all must, God comes and he draws us to himself and he comforts us and his Holy Spirit gets in there and starts working in our souls, rooting us in who he is instead of the world. And that's why Paul says, I delight in suffering. Because in the kingdom of God, suffering is winning. Now, in this time of uncertainty, we're all at different places. I think many of us, our plans have blown up and we're disappointed. We are impatient. We're frustrated. Some of us are really lonely right now. We are separated from our support structure. We're, we're, we're alone out there. Some of us have too many people in our space, especially parents of young children just want some me time. There's like people in my face all the time. Oh my gosh. And some of us are in difficult financial straits. We lost our jobs. Our businesses are closing down. This is the time. Okay? This is the time. In this uncertain time, I want to say to you, take heart, be encouraged, because the God who loves you, the God who died on the cross for you, the God who wants best for you, he is with you right now, and he's drawing you to himself, and his Holy Spirit is at work in your heart right now, doing that deep soul work of transformation. So we rejoice, we take heart, we are encouraged, because suffering is winning in the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us. Father, here we are. We are before you. Whether we're sitting, we're standing, we are before you. We are, we are acknowledging that we're broken people living in a broken world. Whatever facade of control we throw away because we know that's just false. Whatever sense of power or strength that we think we have, we've tossed that away because we know that's just vanity, that's just like mist. 
We are before you. Broken people live in a broken world. And we want to draw close to you. We want to know what it means to see suffering as winning. We want the work of your Holy Spirit in us to transform us into the people you want us to be. We give you all the praise and thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.